0: Actor and humorist John Cleese holds a number of titles, like Visiting Professor at Cornell University and Minister of Silly Walks. Cleese is famous for his work with the comedy group Monty Python and for the popular British television series Fawlty Towers. He's also starred in many films and written numerous books, and on Sunday, October 1st, he'll be visiting the IU Auditorium. He recently spoke via telephone with WFIU's Aaron Kane about the serious business of comedy, the importance of travel, what's so funny about medical statistics, and other light, breezy topics. I thought perhaps I'd start you off with a bit of a softball. Uh, why is there no hope?
1: Oh, well, um, let me give you one example. Do you know the average attention span of a millennial is seven seconds? you know what the average attention span of a goldfish is? Uh-oh. It's nine seconds. I think it's doubtful, I'm being perfectly serious, whether Donald Trump has a, an attention span much longer than that of a, a goldfish because there were always three things that worried me about him. One is temperament. Two, his narcissism. But above all, his inability to concentrate. Gary Schwartz, who wrote the uh, art of the deal for him, uh, mentioned this at the very beginning. I don't think you would give him a page of something important to read. I don't think he can take it in. So, I mean, there is no hope because if we are electing people like that, and the, uh, the thing about the last election that amused me was that Americans always proudly became themselves as the greatest democracy. And they finished up with the two people running for the presidency, both of whom were thoroughly detested by most of the population. I don't think that democracy should work like that. I think probably the greatest democracy on earth is Holland, arguably Denmark and Sweden and Norway, too. And in America, the first thing that anybody does when they uh, get elected is to try and make sure they're going to be elected in another four years' time. So uh, it it just doesn't work. There is very little hope, except if we want to go off quietly and live together and be nice to our friends and especially to our pets, then I think we can have very happy lives, but not if we think we can ever make the world a more intelligent and uh, humane and kind and uh, flexible place.
0: This reminds me of something that you wrote in your recent book, So Anyway, which uh, I believe is out in its audiobook version right now.
1: Won a gold award in New York, I have to tell you. It was an international competition and it got the number one spot. It's one of the very best things I've ever done. Forgive me plugging it, but I'm proud of
0: it. Oh, oh no apologies necessary, because you wrote something in it that I thought was really spectacular. You said, it seems the creative impulse is sparked by the need to reconcile contrasting views of the world.
1: I think that's right. It's not original, but uh, the person who said it to me, um, this guy, a famous psychiatrist called Robin Skinner, I thought about it more and more, and that explains why uh, one of the characteristics of creative people is that they traveled a great deal in their youth, because uh, then they had to reconcile that this town really is different from that town, and I like that other town better because of this, but I like this town better because of that. When people start making comparisons, it seems to strengthen. the mind, whereas if they grow up in Dollsville, Indiana, and never see any other form of culture, they don't have anything to compare it with, and therefore they don't develop their critical thinking.
0: Now, when you tour, do you get to see much of the communities you visit?
1: I get to have very good conversations with the people that I'm working with, and that's one of the things I like about this. Um, uh, uh, Even here with very short meet and greets afterwards, it's surprising how many really interesting things people say to me. I like that interaction. I never get much time to see the actual town that I'm in or the city.
0: But what sort of stories and perspectives are you encountering out there in your travels?
1: I'm encountering the fact there's a sort of bewilderment about what's going on and that people are very confused by what the uh, what the future brings. And the other thing I've learned in the last two or three years in a way that I'd never appreciated before is how scared Americans are of getting seriously sick, because it can very easily bankrupt them. And that's a fear, you see, they don't have in Northern Europe, in socialist countries, because people know that they're going to get looked after. And that to live under that fear, I think, is very, very debilitating.
0: Speaking of health, you've also said that a good sense of humor is a sign of a healthy perspective.
1: Well, I think it can encourage us not to get too... Um, too, too serious about things. Let me put it like this, not to get too solemn about them. You see, you can be perfectly serious discussing something and still be laughing with each other and making good jokes, but the content can still be very, very serious. I think the danger is that um, stupid people, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, stupid people do tend to think they're much more intelligent than they actually are. And I don't know what we can do about that because I think that is a major problem. The irony is the other side, which is the more intelligent people, tend to think that they're not quite as intelligent as you might think because they don't realize that a lot of the people around them are much stupider. So this gives confidence to stupid people, and that's a danger. I think what we've got to know is it's almost impossible to forecast the future. Um, Therefore, what we should do is stumble forward together, uh, just trying things and seeing what works without actually being sure what will work. And I think that that attitude, which is certainly what I do in comedy, uh, I mean, I know that I'm going to make an enormous number of mistakes, but if I do my shows out in front of audiences, they would tell me what's good and what isn't. And I think if people took that much more scientific attitude, let's try something and see if it works or if it doesn't work. If people did that, then it would be much easier for people to listen to each other's opinions.
0: It sounds like the, the fear of failure has a, a role in all of this.
1: I think that's right. I think fear of failure is a very sad thing because what I realize now, and there's a lot of very good books out there that are saying this, is that life is hugely a matter of luck. Hugely a matter of luck. And there's more and more literature on this, and I'm convinced of this. I think if you explain that to kids, that it makes them more persistent. They're not going to give up so easily. Because if you just tell them they're intelligent and they have a failure, they sort of get paralyzed. But if you just praise kids for making an effort, well done. You tried really hard there. I'm proud of you. If you do that, it gives them a chance. Because if you're persistent, you're more likely eventually to, to get lucky. And somebody shocked me once by telling me that the most successful salesmen the one who want to make the most money have the most refusals. And the answer is it's because they're out there trying all the time, and a certain percentage of what they do is successful. So I think it's a very healthy lesson for us to teach young people.
0: As the saying goes, the harder I work, the luckier I get.
1: Yeah, I, I do believe that. I really do.
0: So, you uh, spoke about the Dunning-Kruger effect, David Dunning uh, at Cornell. Uh, you recently spent a week back on the campus of Cornell, is that correct?
1: That's right, and it's interesting you mentioned his name because I actually, he was in, in Cornell two weeks ago and we had a couple of hours together and we're having dinner together tomorrow night in Detroit, isn't that a strange coincidence?
0: So how was it being back on the campus? I understood you uh, were involved in a lot of different classes and other activities while you were there.
1: I think it's ideal I think i've if I'd been an academic, I would have been very happy because I've always been interested in ideas i the I, ideas things that help us to understand the world a little bit better. I've always loved that, and the nice thing about being on a university campus is you're surrounded by people who do know a very great deal about at least one topic. And they're so interesting, and I'm finding uh, information all the time that uh, that I find terribly funny. For example, uh, there was a doctor's strike in New York a few years ago, and statistics show quite clearly that the death rate went down. Now that kind of thing I think is very funny and also very revealing because it means we need to query things in a light-hearted way. Where do doctors actually damage people? I remember Graham Chapman telling me about iatrogenic diseases which is actually a word meaning diseases caused by doctors. And a book I read recently said the three main causes of death in America were first of all, the first two of course heart and cancer. The third is medical errors. Now, some people put it as low as eighth, but the very fact that medical errors is in the top 10 of reasons why people die <laughs> is pretty funny. I mean, there's a calculation that every day in America, the number of people who die through medical errors is the equivalent of two jumbo jets falling out of the sky. I mean, that's a lot of people. But we don't talk about it much. We, we also, for example, get terribly frightened about getting killed by terrorists. Whereas, of course, the real carnage on the road is caused by cars. If you really thought that, that life was that important, you'd reduce the speed limit dramatically. The number of deaths would disappear practically. But nobody wants to do that because they're in a hurry. So there's all these sort of strange paradoxes about our behavior. And I think that comedy is a very good way of bringing them out.
0: In your book, you wrote that you had an aptitude for Latin and mathematics when you were in prep school, perhaps because they were systematic. Uh, You learned simple rules and applied them. Does comedy operate by similar rules or is it more ephemeral?
1: Well, it's more, it's an art rather than a science, but I don't think there's any question that you learn, even if you learn very, very slowly, and even if you continue to make a lot of mistakes, as I do. I mean, I try things all the time, and and a lot of them don't work. Well, the answer is go away and rewrite it. Find out how you can make it work. If you take that attitude of being interested in mistakes, that's a very healthy one. Does that answer your question, or did I get off the point?
0: It does indeed, but it, it reminds me also that perhaps some people give rather more credit than they should to the performance of comedy when the writing is so terribly important. For you, how are the rewards of performing different from the rewards of writing?
1: Well, uh, for me, performing is never as satisfying. You see, I'm an introvert, so I tend my take my values from inside myself rather than from the society around me. And I know that if at the end of a day I have covered a sheet of paper, maybe two sheets of paper, with what I think is funny material, I have a real sense of accomplishment. I don't have that after a day on a film set. Now Don't ask me why. You might as well ask me why I prefer strawberries to raspberries. I don't know, but that's the way I definitely feel.
0: I've heard musicians say something similar sometimes, which is that performance is a a necessary part of the equation, but what they love is practicing or rehearsing when they're in creative control at all times.
1: Exactly what I would say. I think that it's the rehearsing that's the exciting time because that's when you're finding out what works. Oh, this bit doesn't work. What do we do about that? Well, why don't we try that? that oh, doesn't work. Why do we try this? No, that doesn't work. Well, maybe we better cut it. No, wait a moment. That's re- that's creativity. You know, that's play. It's literally like children playing because you're finding out and you're not worried about the end product. You're just interested in solving these problems. And that's a characteristic of people with a real creative uh, ability, is that they they love this kind of play with ideas, and uh, they can tolerate much better than most people of the population the uh, slight feeling of anxiety you get when you don't resolve something. They can live with that much longer. So that means two things. One, that they have more time for their mind to come up with new ideas. and The other is, of course, they may get new information. Most people rush into Decisions because they just feel uncomfortable that something has not yet been resolved. I think that's a sort of cowardice. So,
0: I have one more question. I know that you are six foot four. Uh, has anybody ever told you that you look even taller on the radio?
1: <laughs> Very good. Very good.
0: John Cleese, thank you so much for your time. It's been so great to talk to you today.
1: It's been thoroughly enjoyable for me, too. Thanks.
0: John Cleese, talking with WFIU's Aaron Kane. Please visits the IU Auditorium on Sunday, October 1st at 3 o'clock for conversation, audience Q&A, and a complete screening
1: of Monty Python and the Holy Grail.